This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. For as long as humans have roamed the Earth, we've had the drive and curiosity to discover new and exotic lands. Those on the frontier of sea and land exploration have pushed the bounds of human endurance to reach faraway, uncharted territories. And that's not even taking the space race into account. Unfortunately, when it comes to heading into the great unknown to see what wonders await on the other side, historically, things can get a little… dark. The discovery of new lands and new people was often accompanied by the oppression of entire races, religions, and unique cultures. But not everyone sets out to be a tyrannical leader. Thankfully, most people don't have grand, sinister plans for world domination. These days, anyone interested in capturing and controlling vast areas of land and sea are probably doing it in a video game. And then there are some people whose aspirations are on a much smaller scale. Like forming your own sovereign state, for example, no matter how small or extreme the location. During World War II, Britain was in a somewhat more advantageous geographic location compared to some of its European counterparts, especially the landlocked ones. Even as an island, the country was, of course, still vulnerable to attack and suffered tremendously from countless air raids. To help shore up the country's defenses on the southeast coast, in 1943, six fully armored outposts were constructed approximately seven nautical miles off the coast of Essex. Situated in the middle of the North Sea, the structures would be used to guard the port near Harwich. They were also intended to protect essential shipping lanes against German attacks. The outposts became known as the Monsell Forts, named after Guy Monsell, who designed what essentially looked like offshore oil platforms, only smaller and heavily fortified. One of the platforms was designated HM Fort Ruffs. Commonly known as Ruffs Tower, the 4,500-ton construction was placed near a sandbar called Rough Sands. It measured approximately 43,000 square feet. The platform sat on top of two 60-foot-tall, reinforced concrete towers. The massive columns, which themselves were 24 feet in diameter, were actually hollow inside and sectioned off into seven floors. They were used as a munitions depot and living quarters for up to 300 crew. The top deck was used to mount four anti-aircraft guns. Despite being so close to the British mainland, most of the platforms were technically sitting in international waters. This had some bizarre consequences for the future of the installations after the war ended. It took 11 years before all Royal Navy and civil personnel left Fort Ruffs permanently. It was finally decommissioned in 1956, becoming an abandoned extranational territory, albeit tiny. But that was not the last time the fort would be occupied. In fact, it was about to see more action than it saw during the war. 
There were strange and exciting times in store for the remote platform, something that even the British military could not have seen coming. My name is Eric Crosby. Welcome to True. The 1960s was a time when unlicensed radio broadcasts, also known as pirate radio, became popular throughout Britain. Unlike government radio, though, pirate broadcasters played whatever they wanted. From uncensored news commentary to the hottest rock hits of the day, it was open season. The content was fresh, lively, and unregulated. To avoid the authorities, these radio stations would set up their broadcast equipment on boats. The vessels would head out and anchor as close to land as possible, but safely inside international waters. These were the days of the Wild West for radio, except these pioneers were based at sea. You're nearing things, you're things on wonderful radio. In 1965, one such station, named Wonderful Radio London, sent one of its employees and his daughter out to Fort Ruffs. After all, the abandoned structure was just sitting there, waiting for someone, anyone, to use it. <laughs> the end of that sounds like T.W. blowing his nose, isn't it? Never mind. It's going to be a great big hit for Mr. Herb Albert. It was the perfect base to operate a pirate radio station. Unfortunately for Wonderful Radio, another pirate broadcaster also had his eye on the platform. In early September 1967, a former British Army major named Roy Bates decided it was time for a hostile takeover of Fort Ruffs. Bates had been operating another pirate station called Radio Essex from one of the nearby forts, known as Knock John. The problem with his fort was that it sat closer to the shoreline, and therefore within British waters. He needed to find a new, secure base to continue his operation, and he needed to do it quickly. That's when he set his sight on Fort Ruffs. After kicking out the current occupants from the station Radio Caroline, he set up shop and was back on the air in no time. However, Roy Bates didn't just have plans to broadcast from the outpost, he planned to take ownership of it. So, as a Christmas present to his wife Joan, he declared the structure an independent principality. They would call their new domain Sealand. If you were thinking of taking a trip abroad, you probably imagined that the shortest journey you could make was to cross the 22 miles from Dover to Calais. But in fact, there is a foreign country much closer to Britain, though it's not the kind of place where you can take a package holiday. The couple, along with their teenage children, Michael and Penelope, settled into their new offshore home. Roy Bates, who perhaps not surprisingly has been described as eccentric, decided his official title would be Prince Roy. His wife would be Princess Joan. When you go back to the mainland and see all your old friends or 
yes. meet people in general. How do they treat you? Um, I think the way they've always treated me. Um, they like me, um, get pleasure out of my title. We, we uh, use it and enjoy it. That's what it was given to me for. It was, of course, given to me on my birthday as a birthday present. Uh, but that wasn't the reason for making me a princess, to be perfectly honest. Um, if you if you have a principality, you're simplifying the law. You're not having to write lots and lots of law books, which are uh, obviously costs a lot of money and very time-consuming. So to simplify everything, we made it a principality. And also, I am a princess, and I enjoy having fun with the title. The self-appointed royal family was fiercely protective of the world's newest micronation. A year after taking possession of the rig, British government workers were fixing a navigational buoy near the fort. Prince Roy felt the team got a bit too close and were in fact trespassing in waters that belonged to the Principality of Sealand. His son Michael launched an offensive, firing a flare gun at the naval vessel. Michael soon found himself answering to the British courts on firearms offenses. He was initially viewed as a UK citizen, but by the end of the case, the court was forced to admit that Sealand was outside of their authority. The charges were dropped and the case was thrown out of court. In 1975, Roy Bates decided it was time to formalize things if he wanted people to take him and Sealand seriously. As a tourist attraction, the world's smallest nation was not much to look at. There was no need for infrastructure, such as roads, hospitals, and schools. No spectacular national monuments or majestic scenery. That didn't stop Bates from appointing a head of homeland security, establishing a flag, a constitution, a minted currency featuring Sealand's heads of state, and their very own national anthem. The anthem is entitled, From the Sea, Freedom, which also happens to be their official motto. The quirky prince also made passports available to anyone who wished to apply. Getting to Sealand, as I found out, isn't an easy business. Because it's a foreign country, even if it is only seven miles off the Essex coast, visitors going by air have to use an international airport. Passport control aren't too bothered, but I was reliably informed customs would display a keen interest in me on my return. By helicopter, it takes between 20 and 30 minutes to Sealand, which on first sight looks like a giant two-pin plug sticking out of the North Sea. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. So lately, I've been on a mission to change the way people view their finances and to encourage people to overcome obstacles and adversity. It's just more and more important to me every day. So I've teamed up with the folks at Life Surge. Life Surge is a one-day faith-based event where you'll walk in hungry for success, 
and you'll leave ready to build your resources to leave an impact on others. We're talking faith-fueled finance, growing resources, crushing obstacles, and then, yeah, using it all for something way bigger than yourself. I'll be joining Life Surge in Cincinnati on Saturday, August 3rd. Joining me in Cincinnati is Nick Vujicic, the man with no arms or legs that speaks about his trials and triumphs, soul surfer and author Bethany Hamilton, Duck Dynasty's Willie Robertson, and author and pastor Craig Groeschel, star of CNBC's The Prophet, Marcus Lemonis, and Bethel Music. That's Life Surge Cincinnati on Saturday, August 3rd. Tickets are on sale exclusively at lifesurge.com. I hope to see you there. Bates and his family enjoyed the next few years uninterrupted in their own little slice of concrete paradise, surrounded by water. Despite being able to accommodate more people, the population of Sealand never grew beyond four at any one time. This made it relatively easy to manage national affairs. Unlike other countries, there was also no traffic to worry about. The only street, if you can call it that, was known as the Row, and was actually inside the fort's living quarters. Along the row was a gift shop, a game room, and the chapel. It was a simple and quiet life for the citizens of the small island nation. But in mid-1978, while Prince Roy and Princess Joan were back in England, the peaceful existence of Sealand was shattered by a sudden and unexpected coup. The military incursion was led by a German businessman named Alexander Achenbach. They had recently clashed with the businessman over the future of Sealand, and Achenbach's desire to capitalize on the unique location. He wanted to convert the platform into a luxury holiday resort, complete with a casino. Achenbach hired a team of mercenaries to invade the principality. Michael, who had stayed behind along with a few of his friends, watched on in horror as the invasion began, led by a man named Gerno Putz. The team used jet skis, speedboats, as well as helicopters in the assault. Michael and his friends were no match against the aggressors. In a scene straight out of a James Bond movie, Michael was even taken hostage for several days. Securing his victory, Achenbach declared himself Prime Minister of Sealand. But in a daring mission to recapture the fort and rescue his son, Roy Bates launched Operation Trident using Sealand's own stockpile of weapons. The group arrived by helicopter and successfully took back Sealand. And we were told that they were um, sending 10 next uh, commandos over armed with automatic weapons and all sorts of things to reinforce their position. So we had to come out the next morning at dawn with a helicopter and we took the doors off the helicopter, slid down ropes about 100 feet above the sea because we couldn't land the helicopter, slid down ropes, no life jackets or anything, and um, landed on the top. And as we came down, they were running out of the building and uh, we got in amongst them and, and you know, before they could organize themselves. They were, I think they were debating whether to start shooting or anything. They were armed, of course. Achenbach and his team of mercenaries were captured and held in the brig. Interestingly, Achenbach and Putz were both citizens of Sealand, each having been issued passports to the principality. So, for the first time in the nation's history, it was announced that charges of treason would be handed down. 
Seeland convened a special court to try the German Mr. Putz. Major Bates, otherwise Prince Roy of Seeland, presided. According to a statement from the self-styled Principality of Seeland, Mr. Putz pleaded guilty to a charge of treason by belonging to an armed party who tried to take over Seeland by force. The men would continue to be held until a ransom of $35,000 was paid. It was at this point that Germany stepped in, sending a diplomat to the outpost. It was hoped that Prince Roy would be open to negotiations for the release of the men. For the Bates family, this was the international recognition their micronation needed. It took a few weeks, but Achenbach and Putz were eventually released, only after the ransom was paid. After returning to Germany, a defeated Achenbach decided to fight fire with fire and declared himself a government in exile. Peace was once again restored to Sealand, but not for long. In 1987, the status as a recognized independent principality appeared to come to an end. To avoid a similar conflict happening so close to Britain again, the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea took action. They formally extended the border of Britain's territorial waters from three nautical miles to twelve, which now encompassed the fort. Unfortunately for Roy Bates, the UK Foreign Office rejected Sealand's legitimacy, stating that the platform cannot constitute a separate independent state since it has none of the characteristics of a state. This, however, had little impact to the Bates family, and life continued as usual. Ten years later, in 1997, the Principality made headlines once again. Apparently, those passports, currency, and license plates issued in good faith by Sealand had become the focus of an investigation. The items were thought to be used for international money laundering, drug trafficking, and arms dealing by some of the recipients. Turns out that some major players in the drug world were using the passports and currency to conduct nefarious business dealings. According to reports, as many as 4,000 of the somewhat novelty passports had been sold to people in Hong Kong for around $1,000 each. In fact, a Sealand passport was even found in the possession of infamous serial killer Andrew Kunanen. Police say Versace was shot twice in the head at close range on the steps of his house in South Beach, Miami. Gianni Versace was one of the biggest names in the worldwide fashion industry. About 12 hours later, police identified a suspect. Andrew Cunanan is a suspected serial killer. He has been connected to five murders from Minnesota to South Florida. By that time, Sealand had issued an incredible 150,000 passports, despite not being valid anywhere else. Ultimately, Bates was forced to cancel every one of them. It came as no surprise to anyone when Alexander Achenbach was identified as one of the ringleaders of the passport operation. A hold was placed on issuing further passports, but the decision was made permanent in 2001, following the 9-11 terrorist attacks. With no other commodities to export to foreign markets, the Bates family needed another way to generate revenue. So, in 2000, the Principality became home to network servers of an offshore internet company. However, only two years later, the company cancelled its contract after dealings with the Bates family turned sour. After that, things remained quiet for a few years, until on June 23, 2006, when smoke could be seen billowing from the platform.
a fire had started due to an electrical fault, but thankfully, no one was seriously injured. However, a rescue helicopter from the Royal Air Force was called to transport one person to a hospital on the British mainland. The fire was extinguished, and in less than six months, it was back to business as usual for the Principality. Early the following year, Swedish digital content company, The Pirate Bay, was interested in acquiring Sealand as a new operational base. The company was struggling to meet the strict changes to copyright laws in Sweden and was looking for a new home. Negotiations continued on and off for the next three years. In the end, the Bates family set their sights on a sale price of $906 million. Not surprisingly, the deal fell through and the Pirate Bay had to look elsewhere. Five years later, in October 2012, Roy Bates passed away. His son Michael became the new head of state, and his children, James, Charlotte, and Liam, became the new royal heirs. While Sealand is often described as the world's smallest country, it's not officially recognized as such. It got close, though. So far, its greatest claim to fame is its entry into the Guinness Book of World Records for the smallest area to lay claim to nation status. Of course, limitations on space means any idea of Sealand hosting major sporting events like the Olympics or World Cup is pretty much non-existent. But don't be mistaken and assume these obstacles mean the principality goes unrepresented on the international sporting stage. Despite not having the space for any state-of-the-art training facilities, let alone even basic ones, Sealand is not without its very own national athletes. While the athletes have represented the country in a range of events, the most popular has been soccer. The Sealand Football Association, which was formed in 2004, is a proud associate member of the Nouvelle Federation. The Federation is the governing body for territories that are not members of FIFA. When the Sealand football team took to the field in its debut international match against Finland's Alund Islands, it ended with a respectable 2-2 draw. Not bad for a team that probably lost a few practice balls to the ocean. There are a few problems playing football on Sealand. There are a few obstacles in the way. It's not very big, and as the name suggests, it's surrounded entirely by sea. The following year, the Principality announced a revamp of their football association. They also announced their intention to compete in a future Viva World Cup for teams unaffiliated with FIFA. From here, it's in! His first goal in English football, and that's a corker. Over the next two seasons, the team played at club tournaments held throughout Britain and Ireland. In May 2012, they played the Chagos Islands in their second-ever international game, but lost 3-1. to one. For a fortress nation, Sealand had a surprisingly leaky defence. The Chagos Islanders scored two and ought to have had more. The tide turned after the break. Sealand surged forward and nicked a goal back. They might have equalised, but for some wasteful finishing, you have to take your chances in international football, and the Chagos found space to make sure of victory late on. Sealand didn't just make headlines for its soccer team. In 2015, 
Marathon runner, Simon Messenger, completed a half marathon on the structure. If you're wondering how, he did it on a treadmill. Three years later, in mid-2018, swimmer Richard Royal became the first person to swim the seven and a half miles from Sealand to Britain's southeast coast. The three-and-a-half-hour crossing earned the endurance swimmer an official Sealand knighthood. Aside from proudly flying its national flag atop the platform in the North Sea, Sealand has the honor of also having it planted in some pretty significant locations around the world. Mountaineers, for example, have carried the flag to the summit of Mount Everest, as well as other notable mountains. Today, Sealand is run from the British mainland by Prince Michael, who carries on the legacy of his late father. The royal lineage is going strong, with Michael's children and his grandson Freddie expected to carry on ruling the tiny nation when the time comes. For now, two caretakers living on the platform attend to the day-to-day -day operation, otherwise referred to as the Department of National Affairs. As far as the Treasury goes, the Principality has found a novel way to generate funds. You might be surprised to learn that you can register for a noble title. If you ever wanted to be a lord or lady, a duke or duchess, now you can. Royal titles can be purchased online, starting at a very reasonable price of around $40. Thankfully, you won't be required to attend any formal ceremonies, unless you want to. Also, demand for Sealand passports has not gone away. They continue to receive hundreds of applications for passports every day. Those numbers reportedly spiked in the wake of Brexit and the 2016 U.S. election. But if Sealand sounds like the perfect place to get away, you should know that it's not open to tourists at the moment. Aww. Unfortunately, visa applications remain suspended for the foreseeable future. For more information on the pint-sized nation of Sealand, check out their website at sealandgov.org. And now, please stand for the national anthem of the Principality of Sealand.
why did you do it? <coughs> <laughs> well, I'm not very introspective, really, you know, and I, I never really look for the reasons why I do a lot of... I'm not, I suppose if I was introspective, I wouldn't do anything because of some of the wild ideas I get and the things I do that are a little bit... I'm a, I suppose I'm a maverick. I do the unusual, and I enjoy doing the unusual. You enjoy uh, the challenge, actually. <laughs> I suppose I do, really. Yes. I suppose that's what it is. Uh, I suppose it is a maverick, and uh, and these sort of things uh, don't just tempt me, they attract me like a magnet, and uh, <laughs> I just have to do them, that's all. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. Production of Imperative Entertainment. This episode of True was researched and written by Gemma Harris. The executive producer is Jason Hope of Imperative Entertainment. The cover art and design were created by Jenna Sullivan. True was created and is produced by me. Have any comments or questions? Email us at podcasts at imperativeentertainment.com. As always, a huge thanks for listening and for your amazing reviews and ratings. I'll be back next week with another episode.
the Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.